0: Father, um, we think of the Spirit of God who lives in us. And it is so important for you, for us to know what it means for him to fill us. Not just to inhabit us, but to fill us. And so I pray in these days ahead that you would bless our time. That we would have such a handle on this critical material. That we would be able not just to live it out, but to teach it out especially to our children as we earnestly desire them to walk in the Spirit, to our grandchildren or anyone that you would privilege us to build into and to disciple. So we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the ultimate teacher behind every teacher, that you are the one who illumines truth. You give confirmation of what's true and what's not. And we ask in this hour that your blessing would be over all that is said and done And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is topic number six. We've covered five so far here in the Institute of Biblical Studies. And tonight the topic is a spirit-filled life. We have several objectives, and tonight is largely introductory. And then uh, in the following weeks, we'll get into some more of the practicals. As a result of the study of this topic, one, we want to be able to understand the various types of people in the world today. Two, we want to be able to grasp why God emphasizes the filling ministry of the Spirit. That's important. You need to know why it is that there's such an emphasis on the filling ministry. Why not the baptizing or the sealing or the teaching or so many other ministries that he has? This is central to our walks with the Lord. To be able to defend scripturally the difference between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. To be able to answer why so many Christians do not mature spiritually, to be able to delineate the conditions for being filled with the Spirit, and seventh and finally, to be able to recognize how one remains filled with the Spirit. Now, by way of introduction, it has well been said if you try to understand the doctrine of the Trinity, you will lose your mind. If you deny the doctrine of the Trinity, you will lose your soul. The most difficult aspect about the Christian concept of the Trinity is that there is no way to adequately explain this revealed truth with our finite minds. Though some truths concerning the Trinity may be incomprehensible to us, this does not mean they are not true or not based on the teachings of the Bible. And so in the last session, session five, we zeroed in on the doctrine of the triune God. In this session, we want to focus on how the Holy Spirit is able to fill, that's the blank, able to fill and direct our lives moment by moment and day by day. All right? So if you were not here for the last one and you're trying to put together some basic truths about the doctrine of the Trinity, that might be a good study to consider. Again, it's at searchthescriptures.org. In the handouts and all the messages, I think there are five messages for that handout. By the way, we generally take 45 weeks to teach the discovery class. This is the basic discipleship that we offered our church. And if you introduce someone to Christ, one thing you might consider doing is going to the discovery class with them. That's a great thing. Sometimes a new believer comes into the church and say, hey, we've got this class. I'll go with you if you'd like. And you can build into their lives and answer a lot of their questions. That would be a great thing to do, just to jettison your ABF for 45 weeks and go to another ABF, to the discovery class. And by the way, I tell parents that I believe their children should go through twice, once when they're around 12 years of age in which they need to be accompanied by an adult, and then when they're seniors in high school. Again, if these are the Baccaratum truths, you want them to know when they leave your home, you want to know them so that as you lay down, as you rise up, as you walk in the way, you're able to teach them. Roman number one in this series concerns, in this session concerns the promise of a new and abundant life. The promise that God would come and reestablish a personal relationship with man that was lost in the Garden of Eden is, as you might expect, found in the Old Testament. God warned Adam that if he ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that on the very day he disobeyed, that he would certainly die, Genesis 2.17. Because of his sin and our participation with him, and I underscore that, by the way, because we're not victims of Adam, we're participants with Adam. When Adam sinned, we sinned in and with Adam. That's the biblical truth. And so because of our participation with him, people are born into this world physically alive, but spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 underscores that. Paul speaks of widows who are living dead women, living dead women. What did he mean by that? Physically alive, spiritually dead. Starting in Genesis, God promises and unfolds how he will restore what has been lost. All right? So point A, as you turn the page and fill in that last blank, lost. Point A, the Old Testament prophesies the promise of new life through the Spirit. The Old Testament prophets predicted a restored relationship with God. God promises to Israel in Ezekiel, and I have you write down the number 36, because there's a couple of Old Testament passages. One is Ezekiel 36, and the other is Jeremiah 31, that theologians would call central passages. And that's a term you need to know. A central passage is a fundamental bedrock passage that teaches a particular doctrinal truth. And so the promise of the new covenant would be largely Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31. There's scores of other passages that affirm it, but those are what we would call central passages. So in Ezekiel 36, God promises a new kind of relationship that people can have with himself by the Spirit when he writes these words. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. So notice the parallel there. A heart of stone versus a heart of flesh. A stony heart versus a soft, pliable, sensitive heart. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. So this transformation from the inside out is the promise of the New Covenant. Or you might say the New Testament. The the word diatheke, covenant, is the word that can also be translated testament. So in the broadest sense, we divide our Bible into two halves. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and the New Covenant. All right, so think of your Bible in that way. And Jesus, of course, is the one who initiates this new covenant, this new testament. So the transformation from the inside out is the promise of the new covenant that was not possible until Jesus paid for sin. Jeremiah is going to underscore that in a moment. And if you remember, Jesus is the last supper. You can read the various accounts in Mark and Matthew and Luke and 1 Corinthians. He says, this is the blood of a new covenant, So the New Covenant, the New Testament, began on the cross. And until Jesus in time and space made a payment for sin, this promise that we just read in Ezekiel was not possible. And that's why under the Old Covenant, people could, we might say, get away with certain things and still be considered believers. Now, there are some admirable believers who Like Joseph only had one wife. Moses only had one wife. There's a few wackos who say he was divorced. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's a misreading of the text. But then you had a guy like King David who had five wives. Did he have to be a polygamist? No, but he was and you'll meet David in heaven. Because he had, though he had a heart for God, he had a hard, stony heart. I'm not saying a rebellious heart, but I'm using the metaphor that Ezekiel is using. He didn't have the capacity to know God on the same level that we do on this side of the cross. So instead of the law, point four, working from the outside in, God promised a new heart to work from the inside out so that we too might walk in newness of life, right? Romans 6. Now, sometimes we'll quote this in the baptismal because it, baptism prefigures this, but it has nothing to do with the water of the baptism. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Of course, most of you know that every time you see the word baptism, it's not always in reference to water. And water baptism, contrary to the Church of Christ, cannot put you into Christ. And so they make it a requirement for salvation. No, only the Spirit of God can baptize you into the body of Christ. And that's contextually what Romans 6, 4, of course, is referring to. In John chapter 3.5, Jesus spoke of this to Nicodemus as being born again. And the word born again can also be rendered born from above. There's not a single English word that captures the sense, and so either translation is correct. If you're trying to do a word for word correspondence from English, I mean from Greek into English, sometimes there's not one word that will get it. But that's the sense, born a second time, born from above. One aspect of this new covenant is the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit where not only he lives in every believer, Romans 8, 9, right? If you don't have the Spirit of God, you're not one of his. So if if you don't have the Holy Spirit living in you, you haven't been saved. Not on this side of the cross and not on this side of Pentecost. That could have been true between The old covenant and the cross in Pentecost, but not on this side of Pentecost. As a general rule, there's two exceptions in the book of Acts, but that's for a reason. But now the general principle is that if you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit living in you. And so while he lives in every believer, he can also fill the believer with his power. And that's what the Lord wants to do. He wants to fill us with his power. And Jesus there, of course, on the uh, Mount of Olives, he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. God also promises in Jeremiah chapter 31. So this would be the second central passage concerning the promise of the Spirit as a result of a new covenant. He promises in Jeremiah 31 of a new kind of relationship that people can have with God through the Spirit such that one can become a temple of the Holy Spirit. So under the old covenant, under the old deal, under the Old Testament, God had a temple for his people. Under the New Testament, God has a people who are his temple. And so we are described as a temple individually and we're described as a temple Corporately, earlier in Corinthians, for instance, in First Corinthians three, he says, "If anyone destroys the temple of God," and we say, "Well, that's in reference to you know smoking up and lighting the cigarette and harming your body." Not really. He's talking. I mean, that's a legitimate application, but that's not what that verse is talking about. He's talking about false teachers who come into the church who try to destroy the local temple. When you mess with God's local church, you're messing with God. That's Paul's point there. So my point is, is that you can understand it individually? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God? Or it can be used sometimes to describe corporately. Peter does the same thing, right? Living stones and then a temple of God. So here's um, Jeremiah 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. So it's still in the future. When I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel in the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers and the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their heart and I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each one his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. For they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Why? For, here's the cause, because I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So Jeremiah underscores this new covenant whereby God, where God will forgive their iniquity, that will be later revealed was satisfied with Jesus' own blood, bringing a new covenant relationship with God. So this is future. Now, contextually, of course, he's speaking of the people of Israel, the house of Judah, the house of Israel. When you see these words like Judah and Israel, remember context is everything. Initially, all 12 tribes were called Israel, right? And then the kingdom split, and the northern tribes, the 10 were called Israel, the two southern tribes were called Judah. And sometimes, even after the tribes split on a few occasions. He refers to the whole nation as Israel. But here again, he's describing the northern and the southern kingdom where God's going to do a fantastic work on the inside of his people. And of course, did they experience this? For the most part, no. He came to his own. His own received him not. And so he goes right after this just to remind them that as long as the sun and the moon and the stars are hanging in the sky, that's how long I will be faithful to Israel. And then he goes on from that in the next few chapters to describe that at the end of time before Messiah comes a second time, that Israel is going to realize the promise of this covenant. But as Paul argues in Romans 11, as Gentiles we're grafted in and we can experience the blessings that God gave for Israel. Doesn't mean he's written them off, but we can experience the blessings of the new covenant. All right, number nine. Those connected to God by the new covenant have a personal and close fellowship with God, not previously available, such that all true believers will know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Since salvation was intended for all men, even though this promise is given to Israel, the promise we just read in Jeremiah 31, a nation of people, whom Paul says in Acts 13, quoting Isaiah, was a light for the Gentiles, the promises for all who will believe. And so in the New Testament, in Hebrews eight, he is reminding us that any person, Jew or Gentile today, can become a recipient of the new covenant when you believe. But Jeremiah is talking about a future day down the corridors of time when the nation is actually going to experience it holistically. Clearly, the Old Testament prophesied of a new life through the Spirit. That's lost in Eden. God is going to recapture it through the cross. Okay, B, the New Testament fulfills the promise of new life through the Spirit. Before the ascension... Jesus on the Mount of Olives told his disciples that before their ministry began and sharing the gospel with all nations, they were to stay in the city until they received the Spirit. And so Luke twenty four, forty nine reads, And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And so the promise was fulfilled 10 days later on Pentecost. They called it Shavuot. The Greek word for Shavuot is Pentecost. So we think of typically as Christians, Pentecost is simply being some New Testament deal. And it has its fulfillment on, in, in our second half of the Bible under the New Covenant, under the New Testament. But it's actually an Old Testament feast. There were seven of them, four of them that were fulfilled in the first coming. Jesus dies on Passover. He's in the grave on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He rises from the dead on the Feast of first fruits, And then the Spirit of God is sent at Pentecost. There's three more fall feasts that are going to be fulfilled starting during the time of the tribulation leading up to the millennial reign of the Messiah. And so the promise was fulfilled 10 days later on Pentecost. Pente means what? 50, 50, right? So Jesus rises from the dead on Sunday. He walks on the earth for how many days does Luke tell us? 40 days, Acts chapter one, Luke records it. He ascends into heaven and 10 days later on the 50th day. By the way, the Jews believe that it was on the Shavuot that God gave the law, the 10 commandments. And how many people died on that day? 3,000 souls. On Pentecost, God gives his spirit and 3,000 people are saved. I don't think it's accidental, but that's another sermon. After Pentecost, believers no longer need to wait for the Holy Spirit because in our day, the moment one believes, they are given the spirit. And that's important because... Pentecostal doctrine, though, it's changed many, many times. Traditionally, historically, they taught, first you get saved, later on you get the Holy Spirit. That's not true. Uh, That was, and and if you try to draw a doctrine from a historical book of the Bible, you might come to that false conclusion. Remember, the book of Acts is a transitory book. And so there are some things that were unique to the times of the Acts of the Apostles. And it's not that you can't grasp doctrine from the Acts. We can. But it needs to be read in light of the epistles. Because there were some unique times. Obviously, they had to wait. Why? Because the Holy Spirit had never been given. So they're doing exactly what Jesus commanded them to do. And on that 10th day, they're in that upper room, right outside the Temple Mount. And they receive the Holy Spirit, and they spill out onto the southern steps, and Peter preaches the gospel, and 3,000 are saved, and they've got all these mikvahs all around that area, and he he baptizes them, he and the apostles. But now, at this point, Ephesians, in him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, you might want to circle that word listening, having listening to the message of truth, which is defined here as the gospel of your salvation, in other words, the death, the burial, and the resurrection— Having also believed, circle that word believed. Someone cannot believe until they first listen, right? And so if you share your testimony and it doesn't give the gospel of your salvation, you've shared a testimony. You can't expect them to be converted from your testimony. Nothing wrong with sharing a testimony. But people have to hear the gospel of salvation. Having believed, you were sealed. Circle that third verb, sealed. You were sealed in him. In Christ with the Holy Spirit of promise. We just read that in Romans 6, 4, right? Being buried in baptism and united to Christ, how? By the Holy Spirit, who is given as a pledge. You could render it a down payment, an inheritance, depending, uh, a down payment or the pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So it's very clear by the time you come to the epistles that the moment you believe, you receive the Spirit. It was a unique situation in Acts 8 with the Samaritans. It was another situation in Acts 19 with the disciples of John who hadn't yet heard that what John preached about had been fulfilled. So again, we need to draw doctrine ultimately from the epistles, and we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Scripture. Today, every true believer has become a temple of the Holy Spirit, and therefore, it is essential that every child of God who is now indwelt by the Spirit remain filled with the Spirit. The focus of this session is on how to stay filled with the Spirit so that we might glorify the Lord and enjoy Him day by day. Obviously, the moment you're saved, you're not only indwelt by the Spirit, you're filled with the Spirit. It's inconceivable to say, yeah, I'm, I'm calling on Christ, but I'm rebelling in my heart. No, there's, there's a yielding to the Lord as much as you know how. Uh, you all, To those who listen to the message of truth and, and, and obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, and the word obey is, is uh, two words put together, literally means to listen under. You listen, you submit under, the message of truth. And so you believe. And so it's inconceivable that someone at the moment of conversion is not filled with the Spirit. The question is, will they remain filled with the Spirit? And that's the focus of this lesson. Sadly, many Christians today, well, let me read John 16, but when he, the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and disclose it to you. So that's what the Spirit of God does. He comes to glorify Jesus. It's like driving down the highway at night, and you see a big billboard all lit up. You don't say, man, those are just incredible lights. You don't even think about the light. You just think about the billboard and the message on it. Well, even so, the Holy Spirit comes to illumine Christ. And so when you have a church where the figurehead, so to speak, is the Holy Spirit, it's a bogus movement. You know right off it's a movement that is grossly out of sync and out of balance. Because he didn't come to lift up himself. He came up to lift up the Lord Jesus to glorify him. And that's essential if you and I are to be filled with the Spirit. We're not here to lift up ourselves. We're here to lift up Christ. Sadly, many Christians today are not experiencing the new life Jesus came to bring. Jesus taught us in John 10.10. He said, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I came so that they might have life and might have it more abundantly. In fact, the Bible teaches us that since Pentecost, everyone in the world can now be divided into one of three categories. One of three categories. There is first what we might call the natural man, which is how one is naturally born into this world, being physically alive but spiritually dead. Before one is saved, apart from the Holy Spirit's help in allowing us to understand the plan of salvation. And by the way, you need his help. That's why we pray for souls. Before we talk to men about Christ, we talk to Christ about men. Before I ever walk into and meet the pastor, I go into my prayer closet first. And I say, Lord, I don't know if you're going to bring any lost people tonight. That's what I've been asking you for. We need saved people too. But unless you work in your heart, in their hearts, it's all on deaf ears. God has to open the heart. No one draws himself to the Lord. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. And so um, before one is saved, apart from the Holy Spirit's help and allowing us to understand the plan of salvation, much of the truth found in the Bible just does not make sense. Which is why we learn. In 1 Corinthians 2:14, but a natural man, or you could say a non-Christian, a spiritually dead person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So the Genesis account to a natural man is foolishness. To say that homosexuality and transgenderism is a sin is foolishness. The more immoral the culture gets, the more foolish you look. To say that you're going to keep yourself pure until marriage or you're going to be committed to your marriage vow after you get married, that's foolishness. And so the Holy Spirit enables us to understand all that God has for us and without him, we do not have the ability to grow in a life-changing relationship with God. And so the natural man, as defined here, is one who has not received Christ. This person cannot grow spiritually because they have not had a spiritual birth. 11, in describing our state before the second birth, we read in Ephesians chapter 2, and you are dead and your trespasses and sins. So someone called me yesterday and I returned his call on the way home and he's asking me about, you know, how God works in our lives before we're saved and does this mean it's all fixed and we don't have any free will and da 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 -da. I just reminded him here from Ephesians, we're dead in trespasses and sins. A trespass is literally a false step. It speaks of a known path and you willfully deviate from it. Or a sin would not be so much a sin of commission, but a sin of omission, a falling short. And dead men can't respond. You can yell over a coffin, you can ask the man to straighten his tie, you can, you know, educate him, you can play music, but he's dead. He has no capacity to respond. So the initiative always begins with God and the worst kind of testimony is a self-centered braggadocious testimony where someone begins to reason about how smart and wise they were when they read this apologetic book or that work and they figured this out or that out. Anything they figured out was a work of God Almighty. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, there it is again, and our transgressions made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved likewise in describing the lost of his day Jude says this the apostle Jude wrote these are the ones who cause division worldly minded devoid of the spirit Jude 9 Uh, If you're new to the Bible, that's not Jude chapter 9. There's one chapter, and there's a few books in the Bible that have a single chapter. And so the way you would write it typically is not like Jude 1, 9, but just Jude 9, because there's just one chapter. But the thing you want to see here is that these ones who cause divisions that Jude is dealing with, he's dealing with the acts of the apostates in the book of Jude, and how they come into the church under the guise of being Christians, but they're really not. And sometimes the people who create divisions of the church are just lost people. They know all the right words, but they're lost. Now, a carnal man, as we'll see, can also create division in the church. But sometimes it's just someone without the Holy Spirit. A natural man without the Holy Spirit living in him simply does not have the capacity to comprehend very much spiritual truth beyond the gospel itself, which even this ability, the spirit gives him, right? That's what Jesus promised. When he, the spirit of truth comes, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's a work of the spirit in this age. Without the spirit residing in a person, we do not have the ability to grasp spiritual truth any more than a deaf man can evaluate music. So when I meet people and they tell me they're born again, but they are in favor of abortion or homosexuality, they're just not born again. Why? Because they don't have the capacity to understand basic moral truth. Their own mouth gives them away. The Holy Spirit is he who enables us to know God personally and to grow in a new relationship with God. Right, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, everything has become new, 2 Corinthians 5. The second category of people in the world are those who are known as spiritual men, describing those individuals who have been born again and who have learned to depend upon the Holy Spirit to mature them. So in the next verse, having described natural men, non-Christians, he says in verse 15, But the one who is spiritual discerns or appraises, the old N-E-S. Discerns all things, yet he himself is discerned by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So let's think our way through that. This, This statement in its broader context indicates that only those aided by God the Spirit have the capacity to understand spiritual things. The one who is spiritual discerns or appraises all things, right? So you have to be aided by God the Spirit. This is in contrast to the natural man who cannot be illuminated by the Spirit of God because he has not had the second birth. You have to be born twice, right? He hasn't had the second birth. His ability... To comprehend truth is limited to the material world, where you can see, touch, and feel. And even that, sometimes appraisal, is distorted because of preconceived notions he has about God. A lost man may be able to grasp certain truths intellectually. Example, right, James 2.19, well, the the demons believe and tremble, but they're not obviously born again. Or Romans 1.18-23, where... Paul, if you remember in that section of scripture, is walking through raw paganism and people who have a certain knowledge of God through the created order, but they suppress the truth of God in righteousness. And that's what we're seeing multiply all across our world. Yesterday, Michigan voted, the people of Michigan voted, that you can kill a baby up until the day it's born. So now Roe v. Wade was overturned and it goes back to the States. Those are people suppressing the truth about God. However, without being regenerated by God, his capacity, the lost man's capacity for spiritual truth, is limited. Isaiah says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts, God says. By contrast, the one who is spiritual appraises, we just read in the 2020 version, discerns or judges, you could render it. New King James in three other translations renders it that way. Judges or appraises all things. Meaning that he can discern not just physical human wisdom, but he can also evaluate spiritual truth by the help of the Spirit. So he's living on a different plane because of the help of the Holy Spirit living in him. And by the way, one of his titles, right, is he's called the Helper. Unlike the natural man who does not have the capacity, those who have received Jesus Christ have a new capacity, namely the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. That is, we have a regenerated mind that now has the ability to absorb spiritual truth that we didn't have before. The born-again believer is aided by the Holy Spirit, and so he, he has been given the ability to see. He's given the ability to see, or you could say comprehend, understand, but that word wouldn't fit on the line. <laughs> what is spiritual and to think after Christ? And by the way, it's a good word because that's the word that Jesus uses in John 3. This is precisely what Jesus told Nicodemus when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's interesting because on the one hand, he says, see the kingdom of God. And a few verses later in verse 5, he says, enter the kingdom of God. So you can't go to heaven, you can't enter God's kingdom unless you're born again. And you can't see and comprehend the truth of God's kingdom if you're, unless you're born again. So Nicodemus' blindness was obviously not physical, it was spiritual, it was in the heart. Nicodemus' problem was not physical blindness, but spiritual blindness. And this is the same problem that we all have from our first birth. This is why it is essential that we are not that we not only be born again, but that we are also continually filled with the Spirit so that we might grow in Christ-likeness and in our understanding of God's infallible truth. Now, we will learn a little bit later in this session, not tonight, but next week, that when you're born again, you receive the Spirit and He's there forever. You can never lose Him. But while you cannot lose him, it doesn't necessarily mean you're filled with him. And so if the Spirit of God is the one who illumines truth, who helps you to live a godly life, and all the ministries that he does unfolds under his filling, you wanna keep staying filled with the Spirit. Paul notes in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 2, 15, he himself is discerned by no one. The spiritual man he just said is discerned by no one meaning a lost person just cannot comprehend why a believer thinks as he does. Lady said to us one day, you homeschooled your kids? What was wrong with the government schools? When we decided to homeschool our kids, the government schools weren't even like the government schools are today. But they were bad enough where we didn't want to Put our children through that indoctrination. They thought I was nuts. A very prominent family here in Beaufort. Most of them are dying out, but there are roads named after them. One of the brothers was actually in a Bible study that we held at Stokes 30 years ago. But Mrs. Trask, not Neil Trask's wife, we're in Walmart. Are these all yours? I said, yes ma'am, all five of them. And she gave me a piece of her mind she couldn't afford to lose. Only to find out that she was the one who wanted to bring Planned Parenthood to Buford. She underwrote it because of men like Aubrey and others who stood out there on the highway with signs They didn't make it in Beaufort. One of the few communities, we used to protest an abortion clinic where a man did late-term abortions right here in Beaufort. And we'd go and lunch and we'd hold signs. I was a new pastor here. The police would come and take pictures of us like we're criminals, but he was shut down. There's no abortions done in Beaufort County. None. Thank God for that. Becoming spiritual, as we will learn in this lesson, speaks of maturity, and it is the Holy Spirit who matures us as we are filled with Him. So here's the spiritual man. This is one who's controlled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. This person has what I would call a grown up and a growing relationship with God. Of course, when Paul mentions spiritual man, he's not describing someone who has arrived because the sanctification process is not complete until Jesus comes back. The scripture is clear on that. And so Paul reminds us here at the end of Philippians 3, for our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom will, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his own glory. By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. That's glorification. So Paul also writes to the Philippians in Philippians 3 in verse 12 through 15, not that I have already grasped it, speaking of, you know, full spirituality, not that I've already grasped it all or have already become Perfect. Some translations say mature. It's teleos, a grown-up relationship. It's Not speaking of sinless perfection, and obviously the context draws it out. But I press on if I may also take hold of that for which I was even taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters or brethren, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet. But one thing I do for getting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, all who are mature, and it's the same word in verbal form that we read in verse 12, perfect or mature in some versions. Those who are teleos, let's have this attitude. and 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 if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you as well. So here's Paul, the great apostle. He's just saying, I'm, I'm still growing, bottom line. Nobody has arrived. So below are some of the characteristics. A spirit-filled Christian who is progressively filled with the Spirit and growing in Christ will manifest. He has a life that is Christ-centered. That means Christ calls his shot in every detail of his life. In other words, your Christian life is not just when you come to church. It's everything. Your work is spiritual. Someone said to me recently, he said, I, I want to lay up more treasure in heaven. He said, I, but I've got this job I have to do 50 hours a week. I said, that's spiritual. Do your work heartily as unto the Lord rather than from men, knowing that it's from the Lord that you receive the reward of your inheritance. I mean, God rewards me if I'm a landscaper or a plumber or a doctor or a lawyer. Yes, if you do it unto Christ. Everything, there's no such thing as really you know, bifurcating the Christian life, and this is spiritual over here, and this isn't. It's all spiritual. Now, certainly, if you've got your mind renewed, there'll be some things that you will do that other people won't do who haven't grown up. This person is depending on the spirit. He's involved in pointing people to Christ. We'll see that further later on. He experiences answered prayer. Why? Because the prayer that gets to heaven... Starts in heaven. God the Holy Spirit living in you impresses you to pray for something. You pray it back to the Father through the cross and it's answered. Maturing in God's word has an attitude of gratitude. You know a grumbler is someone who's not walking with the Lord. You know, if I find myself grumbling, I just got to do some internal checks thankfulness is a mark that you're under the spirit's control has an obedient lifestyle lifestyle enjoys being with God's people you know one of the first marks first john reminds us of someone who's out of fellowship with God is they don't want to be with God's people why not it's too convicting they don't want to come to church if they're out of fellowship He's found a place of service. He ties to God's work. He wants to build up God's church. Has a song in his heart. Your voice may not be the best voice in the world, but you can sing. You know, I have a hymnal sometimes in my quiet times. And I sing some hymns. Nobody hears it but God, and I'm sure he loves it. <laughs> lives with an eternal perspective and earnestly wants to glorify God. We will explore in this section that the degree of fruit is a byproduct of being filled with the Spirit over the course of time such that we should not compare ourselves to others who have walked with God longer. But let me just say, this same Holy Spirit that is filling someone like a Billy Graham when he is alive fills you. The Apostle Paul now highlights a third kind of person that we might refer to as an infant or fleshly or as a carnal. American Standard Version 1901, a predecessor to the translation you have in your hands, rendered it carnal. The King James does that, a carnal believer. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. As to infants in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Paul, having planted the Corinthian church, you learn that from the book of Acts, right? Acts 18. Dealt with the Corinthians, not as spiritual men, for they were new Christians. Being infants or babes in Christ, the 95 edition says, able to absorb only simple truth. You don't feed a baby steak. You start with milk. And milk can be used in two ways in the Bible. Sometimes of the purity of God's word. A meaty truth can be milk in that sense. Or sometimes it can be used of a simple truth. Paul's usage of the term spiritual man in verse one indicates that such an individual is more than a spirit-filled believer because obviously when you receive Jesus, you are immediately indwelt and filled. Contextually, when he mentions spiritual man, he is describing people who have walked with the Lord in the Spirit's power such that over the course of time, spiritual maturity develops. And we'll explore this more next time that it's not just being filled with the Spirit, but being filled with the Spirit over the course of time that produces a spiritual man. But a spiritual man, as we just read, is not an arrived person. We don't arrive until Jesus comes back or he takes us. But he has a grown up and a growing relationship with Jesus. The Apostle Paul has already noted in 1 Corinthians 2.6 that he and others, he uses the verb we, Uh, including the other apostles, he and others taught God's wisdom among those who are mature, which tells you right off that a person can be saved, but immature. And he elaborates on that when he comes into chapter three and he speaks of babes in Christ. God not only wants us to come to faith in Christ, but he wants us to grow out of infancy into maturity, allowing us to digest solid food and the growth God wants is to continue until he takes us home. But sadly, some Christians are stagnated, stagnated in their spiritual growth. Okay, so point number 40 there on your handout in writing to the Corinthian believers who had already reached who had already received Christ on Paul's second missionary journey. So it's the second missionary journey that by the way, Luke is a premier historian. And he leaves these little clues all the way through the Acts of the Apostles and the gospel that he writes. Who wrote most of the New Testament? Say Luke. Don't say Paul. Luke wrote more of the New Testament than any other writer. Because when you take Luke and Acts and put the two together, the length of those are longer than all of Paul's letters put together. So God uses Luke in an incredible way. But he plants the church. He notes that Paul plants the church on his second missionary journey. And because of chronological clues, you can pinpoint it at 51 A.D. And approximately four years had transpired when he writes his first Corinthians to them, his first letter to Corinthians, which would be 55 A.D. And so, when Paul informs the Corinthians, in Corinth, the Christians in Corinth, that he cannot give a call them spiritual people, the problem was not that they had not truly believed in Jesus and received the Spirit of God. That was not the problem. So, four years was enough, at least in Paul's theology, and he is writing it under the inspiration of the Spirit for someone to be con- considered mature, not arrived, but mature. Grown up, growing relationship. They had had that time. Clearly, Paul already uh, has written that their faith had been confirmed. He already had written that their faith had been confirmed by the gifts of the Spirit given to them, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.7, such that on the day of the Lord when they meet Christ, they would stand blameless. 1 Corinthians 1 9. So these are you can't you can't say, well, these aren't believers, these are believers. They had the gifts of the Spirit, which, is, which are only given to born-again people. So all these Pentecostal churches that are exhibiting these various gifts and they don't even know what the plan of salvation is, they can't be real. I've had more Pentecostal charismatics who've come here who've spoken in tongues and they don't even know the plan of salvation. But they've had this experience. It's obviously not real because spiritual gifts are only given to born-again people. I'm not saying their experience wasn't something that happened. When we had one of our speakers here for the missions conference, we chatted back in my office, and he said, yeah, I was a charismatic. He said, here, let me give you some line, and blah, 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 blah. And I said, you know, that's a phrase I hear over and over and over again in charismatic circles. He said, you're right. That's one of the things they train you with. You know, to prime the pump so you can speak in tongues. Mm. I won't go there tonight, but I have a whole session on it. If you want to take in the Institute of Biblical Studies what the Bible says about spiritual gifts. I did my doctoral dissertation on it. And you're getting the appendix out of the doctoral dissertation if you take that course. The problem was not one of conversion, but of growth. Growth. Because about four years had transpired where they should have matured in their faith, such that the Apostle Paul could have given them solid food. So here's the carnal man pictured. The Spirit of Christ is in this person's life, he's just not directing his life. This person often lives as a result in frustration and defeat, not experiencing the abundant life of Christ. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? Oh, yes, you are. As new Christians, he gave them, past tense, milk, for that is what they needed, However, please note the change in tenses in verses 1 through 3, as he moves from a past to a present tense, where he now tells them, even now you're not yet able, when they should have been able four years later. The problem, as the Apostle Paul will go on to describe in this chapter, is that they are still living as if they were unspiritual people. That is like mere men, as if they were still spiritually dead. All right, turn the page. Um, spiritually speaking, they were infants in Christ because they are still newborn, weak, undeveloped Christians when enough time had passed such that they should be displaying spiritual maturity. While they show marks of conversion, 1 Corinthians eleven two. Uh, Paul actually praises the Corinthians, and uh, he makes this statement there. He said, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, not like we use traditions today, but the, the critical doctrinal truths, just as I delivered them to you. While they show marks of conversion, they still manifest fleshly or carnal traits, acting like mere men or like lost people. As seen in there, and he's just referenced it in 1 Corinthians 3, there are jealousy and strife from the church. Jealousy and striving, infighting, that's what lost people do in the, in the uh, um, Rotary Club or some other group, but not in the church. The church is supposed to be unified. But it won't be if you're a bunch of crying little whining babies. Sometimes the hardest people to deal with who come to join Community Bible Church are those who come here as believers. I call them crusty old Christians sometimes because they bring this baggage with them where they've just kind of been stunted in their spiritual growth for decades and they don't even see it. And sometimes they're the hardest people to work with. But if they have a heart for the things of God, it's, so it's easier sometimes you get a brand new person in the kingdom and you can get them from day one grounded in the faith where they can really take off. So they continue to live in the flesh, meaning that they are living for themselves and for their bodily appetites instead of living in the power God has given to them by the indwelling of the spirit. So because of his spiritual infancy, he lives in an up and down spiritual experience they have not yet learned how to depend upon the spirit to mature them, and so some of the following may characterize the carnal man. A legalistic lifestyle. Legalism, today if you have a standard, they say you're legalistic. No, most of the time you're obedient. But legalism is not necessarily these man-made rules, though they can be. But it's when you do something for the wrong motivation. And we'll see this as we walk through this session. When you do something, say, to earn God's approval, you're working as a saved person towards the approval of God instead of from the approval of God. That's legalism. Impure behavior, worldly music, sensual violent media. They divide by jealousy. They're dominated by guilt. They hold grudges. They've left their first love. They... Don't pray, they don't converse with God. Little desire, little or no desire for Bible study. They're often inactive in God's local church. They find solace in alcohol or food. They fantasize sin instead of obedience. They live in discouragement. They're characterized by frustration. They're ignorant of basic spiritual truth. They have no direction in life. They're dominated by fear and worry and they live in unbelief. They're known sometimes just as a disobedient believer. Now, it's very possible that a person with these same characteristics, and by the way, you could have one or several of these. This is not a complete list. But some people have a lot of these. It's very possible that a person with these same characteristics have never been saved. Because while conversion does not bring perfection in this life, conversion does result in a new direction. So one of the things we're going to talk about in in handout number six, is what is it that stunts spiritual growth? The Bible teaches that the second birth will transform your life. And so, here are some verses that remind us of this. And by this we know we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. Paul says they profess to know God. I'm born again. But by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. He says in Ephesians 5, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things The wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. Can a Christian commit these things? Yes. He's gonna address some of these issues in the Corinthian church. Some of them were sexually immoral. Some of them got drunk. But scripture must interpret scripture. If this is the direction of a person's life, it typically means they've never had the new birth. Sadly, sometimes Christians can categorize a professing believer as a carnal Christian when in reality they've never been saved. The individual who professes to be saved but has no heart for the Lord may not be saved at all, according to Titus 2, Galatians 5. Titus 2, he makes a very profound statement, the grace of God that brings salvation to all men teaches us So salvation, the grace of God, was provided for all men, but it teaches us who have believed to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Or like in Galatians, I was turning there, um, he says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. New direction. For this reason, Paul cautioned the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. To spiritually examine oneself includes an honest look at whether one is truly a believer in Jesus. Because when you die or when Jesus returns, the opportunity for such a test will be forever too late. In writing this, the Apostle Paul is not trying to create a sense of doubt He wants people to be assured of the unfailing love of God, Romans 8, but to get some of the Corinthians to do some honest evaluation because some of their lifestyles caused him some concern. We should want every true believer to have the assurance of salvation and to know how to endure the attacks that come in this area from Satan. At the same time, and we cover that, by the way, in the very first handout that we spent five sessions on, assurance of salvation and eternal security. We should want every true believer to have assurance of salvation, how to deal with these attacks. At the same time, we also understand that there are some who assume or presume they are Christians when they are not. And that's the big wake-up call, right, at the judgment Matthew 7. I never knew you. Paul knew there were some among the Corinthian Christians who might fail the test or you could render it be disqualified for eternal life and salvation. If we do not examine and test ourselves now, we may find out later that we ultimately do not pass the test and are disqualified from heaven. I say all that to say, be careful in categorizing someone as simply being out of fellowship with God. Sometimes I'll say to a person in my office, I say, well, you know, I'm not your judge. You know all the right words, but your lifestyle is denying what God's called a true believer to, and you may be saved, but the New Testament would give you very little assurance that you are. Okay, I'm just going to pray because I went over And we have music people who work hard in there and that you need to get your kids. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, you said that you would not leave us as orphans. And you didn't. You sent another one just like yourself. One who is also called after you, the Spirit of Christ. Who helps us who assures us, who bears witness with our spirit that we've become children of God. Spirit of God, we pray in these days that you would teach us how to walk in your power and your presence to be continually, moment by moment, filled with you. Teach us what from our end would prevent that. Teach us to be able to teach our children especially how to walk in the Spirit. So help us not to grow weary in doing good. Help us to care about the souls of lost people, even this week. Thank you for the lady I met yesterday in Lowe's who I invited to church. And she says that some days she has a pocket of community Bible church cards because of people who invite her. Father, thank you for people who are so faithful. May we excel still more. May the seeds that were planted on friend day result in more conversions, more people that would know and love the Lord Jesus. Help us as a local assembly to grasp basic, non-negotiable, essential truths that we might walk in them and be able to teach others in fulfillment of your great commission. We ask it, our Father, through your Son's holy name. Amen.